to uh, continue on in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's, let's open with prayer and then uh, open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you again for the testimony of people who were willing to lay their life on the line and to place all their trust in you and go where a, a sane, rational person might not go, uh, but for the purpose of of doing the work of the Lord, and, and I thank you for their testimony. And some paid the ultimate price. I pray that each, each of us would be strong enough to pay the ultimate price in our lives to, to whatever it is that you call us to. It may not be something as drastic as that, but wherever you place us, Lord, you want us, and you want us to do what it is you call us to do. I pray for the strength and the, and the, uh, the discipline and the love for you that would cause us to do that. I thank you that we can gather now and pray for your Holy Spirit to direct our, our hearing and our understanding of the word so that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians 15, which I mentioned last week, J. Vernon McGee had suggested would make the list of the, one of the 10 most important chapters of the Bible if you were to make such a list. And the, the, the reason being because it speaks of the resurrection. And uh, we were going to continue on today. Really, the, where we ended last week was not a good stopping point because there isn't a good stopping point there because it all belongs together. But we stopped in verse 20 and we will continue on. Uh, again, we, we concluded as we looked last week, and the scriptures are very clear, that the, the, the resurrection... Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention my wife is passing out outlines which have nothing much on them except verse delineations, so you may take notes about anything that strikes you uh, if you so desire. Uh, it's just sometimes easier to have something to write on if you want. If you don't, you're not going to offend me. Uh, but uh, Paul used what we called a reductio ad absurdum argument about the resurrection. That is, he said, let's assume for a moment that, the, that Christ was not raised from the dead, and let's see where that leads. And it leads to obvious contradictions of the Christian faith. Now, I pointed out at the end, uh, this is not mathematics. When you do a reductio ad absurdum argument in mathematics, you reach um, you know, absolute truth because you're arguing absolute logic. But we are discussing the, uh, you know, our faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So somebody can always just say, well, yeah, but I don't believe. And that's always people's option. So even though he made a good argument, we can look at that and say, yes, the, the, the assumption that Christ was not raised from the dead leads to a contradiction to everything that we know to be true about the Christian faith. And so therefore, that, that obviously is not true. The, the fact that the resurrection didn't exist is not true which means that Christ was raised from the dead. And, and he, he concluded, I mean, a key verse was 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You, ye are yet in your sins. So without the resurrection, we are lost. There, even though Christ died on the cross, um, without the resurrection, we are lost. And then we concluded in, in, in 19 with, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of, of all men most miserable. And, and that, uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, perhaps the main one being that, that truly the life of being a true Christian and a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is a hard life. And, and we, we wind up giving up some of the pleasures of the world and 
suffering some uh, persecution or if not persecution, ridicule. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen to a Christian that are not, uh, they're not nice and smooth in this world. And so why would someone choose that if all you had was, was Christ in this world? You're, you're, you'd be worse off than one of the enemies of Christ if there was no resurrection. And so that was where we got. And I wanted to just end in 20 because that was kind of the good news where he concluded, but now Christ, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And that is clearly not a truth that can be debated. This isn't, well, what do you feel about that? And what do you feel about that? This is an absolute truth that, uh, that Christianity stands on the fact that Christ was risen from the dead. So that's where we ended. And I, I forgot to mention it last week, and, I'll, and I think I may have mentioned it before, but I, when I was in my younger days, back in the 70s, I think it was, when the, uh, these rock operas came out, and, and the, the, this guy, Andrew Lloyd Webber, wrote a rock opera called Jesus Christ Superstar, and I liked some of the music in it when I was back then. I don't know what in the world was wrong with me, but um, I liked some of the music in that, but and at the time, didn't care one way or the other, but that rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, ended at the crucifixion. That's where it ended. So it really, you know, while some were saying, you know, the old hippie Jesus freak movement of the 60s and 70s, this was an attack on Christianity because it, it told the story up through the crucifixion and then stopped. And, and if that were our only story, if Christ were still in the grave, we would be of all men most miserable. And so, it, again, because of the importance of the resurrection, it is not uh, surprising that the world will attack. From the time that the soldiers were given money and told, if anybody asks you, tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. From that day till this day, there have been all sorts of theories as to what really happened. He didn't really die. He just passed out and he revived in the tomb and somehow got out. And, you know, all sorts of things for people who do not want to be, what it boils down to is people who do not want to be accountable to the God of the universe will come up with an excuse for why the resurrection did not happen. And I find it interesting that there is no other religion in the world that purports to have a central figure that is raised from the dead. And that is just not something that you fake. Um, so, now we'll go on and continue uh, with starting in verse 21 and read the, uh, the rest of the chapter. Uh, normally I read all the verses. I think I'll read just sections at a time of, of the rest of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I intend to finish up the rest of this chapter. I have about 15 minutes on, on each of the remaining 37 verses. So we will be here till tomorrow. No, I don't. So let's begin in 21. Well, let's go back to 20. He said, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Uh, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For 
he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'll stop there for now, and then we'll, continue, we'll read sections as we go along. <clears throat> so if we begin in verse 21, he's talking here, he's saying, By Adam, the human race was plunged into sin. And all that are in Adam, those are key words, in Adam. The key words here are in Adam and in Christ. <clears throat> in Adam, that, <clears throat> being in Adam means that you are human. Uh, so all were plunged into sin. Because he says uh, in 22, for as in Adam all die. So in Adam all die. So the, the physical and spiritual death came to all in Adam. And, but by Jesus, who's referred to later on as the last Adam, uh, and we'll get into that later, um, he says that all that are in Christ shall receive salvation or spiritual life by grace. We are all in Adam <clears throat> by virtue of the fact that we are human, that we were born as humans, descendants of Adam. But when it talks about in Christ shall all be made alive, th th there aren't any uh, mainline evangelical parts of Christianity that would argue from that, that everybody is saved. There are some fringes areas that argue from this verse that, see it says that in Christ shall all be made alive, and they try to argue some universal salvation that everybody's going to be saved. That's clearly not what the Bible teaches uh, all throughout. So when he's talking about the all there, it means all that are in Christ. And we are in Christ only by being born again and becoming a new creation. So just as we receive natural life through Adam, we receive divine life through Jesus Christ if we are born again. <clears throat> it is interesting to note here, though, that all, all, and meaning everyone, everyone really is resurrected. Uh, because the Bible teaches that there are two resurrections. Uh, Matthew 5, 28 and 29, the Lord himself speaking, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So that's a verse where Jesus in his word said that everyone will be resurrected. And then if you turn to Revelations 20, <clears throat> actually I'm not going to read in Revelations 20 uh, right now, but you, you could note Revelations 20 and read that. It discusses the first and the second resurrection. The first resurrection being the resurrection of believers to eternal life. And the second resurrection is that the, discusses the great white throne judgment where the unbelievers also are resurrected, judged at the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. So there are two resurrections. So everyone is resurrected, but not all are alive. Only those that are in Christ are alive. So, uh, and the emphasis here is on those that are made alive in Christ. Um, and, and again, he's speaking to saved brethren here because he starts at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, you know, talking to the brethren and saying, this is, you know, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received and wherein ye stand. So he's talking to those who have received the gospel, uh, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and are standing on their, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 23 where he says, every man in his own order. Uh, the word order there was a military term. And it meant a company. 
And so this would imply that first Christ, the leader of the company, is raised. And then his followers are raised after him, organized, you know, as he would have them organized. You know, as we are born and live throughout, uh, you know, the ages. Uh, um, so it is, it is basically using a military term to just say it's Christ first and then his followers after him, organized as he would see fit. We go on to verses 24 to 26 when it, it talks about then cometh the end. And I uh, believe this refers to the end, the time coming at the end when resurrection is all done. Meaning, I believe, at the end of the millennial reign. Because throughout the millennial reign, people will be on the earth and living and Christ will be reigning. But there will still be death on the earth. And at the end of, you know, the very end is when the end comes... And then the judgments, you know, the resurrections will happen, the first and the second resurrections. And at, at, this is at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, when all the dying is done. Okay, people, the, there's no more dying. Uh, the first and sec second resurrections will take place. And all earthly rule and authority will be gone. And it says Christ will deliver up the kingdom to God. The last enemies of Christ will be defeated. And last of all, death will be all done. Death will be defeated because it will be all done. I think that, that's what he's talking about here. Yeah. And we go on to 27 and 28. Um, God decreed that all things were in subjection to Christ. Now you have to be a little, you have to read 27 and 28 carefully because there's a lot of he's and him's. You know, there's a lot of pronouns there and you have to kind of figure out which he and him they're talking about as it goes along. But for he, God, hath put all things under his, Jesus' feet. But when he, God, saith, all things are put under him, Jesus, it is manifest that he, God, is accepted, which did put all things under him. So certainly God is not under the authority of Jesus. Um, and then it says here that uh, when all things shall be subdued unto him, unto Jesus, then shall the Son, Jesus also himself, be subject unto God that put all things under him. So it's kind of interesting. It talks about Jesus being subject to the Father, and, of course, in the Bible, in, in Revelations 4.11 and Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, I'm not going to read them, but it talks about all things in, being in subjection to Christ. So all things in the world and everything are in subjection to Christ. And it says that Christ will place himself under the, under the sub, sub, subjection of the Father. Now, W.E. Vine, this is a quote from him talking about this verse because it's, and we say, well, wait, isn't Jesus God and isn't he equal to God, but being subject to God? You know, it's one of those kind of confusing things. Vine says, when the Son, acting as the Son of Man, has completed the work of subjugating all things in the exercise of the authority committed to him by the Father, he will with great delight be in voluntary subjection from the governmental point of view to the Father, whose will and purposes he will have perfectly fulfilled. His oneness with the Father will forever remain as it did when he was on the earth, when he declared, I and my Father are one. That's John 10.30. So obviously Jesus declared that he is equal with the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. But then these verses are saying Jesus will place himself in subjection to the Father. It's one of those things that are a little bit difficult to, to grasp onto. But his conclusion, Vine's conclusion, is his subjection to the Father both then and hereafter in no way whatever could detract from, from his essential deity. Now that sounds like playing with words and it's one of those things that's difficult to understand, but I believe 
You know, Christ did place himself in subjection to the Father by becoming human and being incarnated, coming to this world and being born as a baby and, being, and, and living the life as a human. He put himself in subjection to the Father. And these verses imply that, he, that throughout eternity he will, in some sense, in that same sense as the Son of Man, be in subjection to the Father. All the while, he is still equivalent with the Father. And that's one of those things like the Trinity where you just say, the Scripture says it, I believe it, and I'm not sure I can explain it to you any better than that. But uh, <clears throat> that's what it says. Um, okay, I, if there's any comments or questions on that, I, I don't, again, I... Sometimes we have to hold on to things and say the scripture teaches the truth. It's a little bit hard to understand, but there it is. Okay, then we get to 29. 29 is a real interesting verse. Uh, 29 says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? It, there, there have been as many interpretations of this verse as there probably are people who have looked at this verse. Um, and I, and I went through it, dug, dug around and found, you know, that there are a lot of different interpretations of what this might mean. And I don't, personally don't think it's worth going through what all of the different possible interpretations are. I did want to personally mention two of them. Uh, and that is, there are some who say that what he's referring to here is the the uh, idolatrous practice that is practiced by the Mormon church today of baptizing people who are alive on behalf of people who have died without being baptized. Uh, the Mormon church practices that today. And uh, they suppose two things that are not taught by scripture. One is that you have to be baptized to be saved. Now, I believe that if you are born again, that you should follow the Lord in baptism. I believe it is the right thing to do that you should be baptized, that I should be baptized. But the Bible does not teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. It is not baptism that saves you. It is faith in Christ that saves you. And baptism is an outward sign. You're, you're identifying with Christ's death and resurrection and, and identifying yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Mormons suppose that you have to be baptized to be saved. And two, that if you die without being saved, without being baptized, and you're not saved, that somebody who's alive and who knows about you can be baptized in your place and then kind of get you saved sort of after the fact. They believe that. And that is one of the reasons why the Mormons have probably the foremost collection of genealogies in the world, because they believe that you, you know, they, they really want to go back and find everyone in their whole family line to make sure that they're baptized, that everybody in their family line is going to make it to heaven. So they want to find everybody who's in their family line. So people who are doing genealogies a lot of times will wind up going to the Mormon church and trying to get information there because they have a database of probably the foremost database on, on uh, uh, genealogies, and family genealogies. Ironsides tells a story of a Mormon pastor that he talked to who claimed he had a rich lady. Oh, by the way, when you get in the Mormon church, when you get baptized on behalf of someone else, you have to pay some money into the church. So it's kind of a little moneymaker on the side here, too. He, uh, he said um, this Mormon pastor claimed that he had a rich lady who was using her fortune being baptized for everybody that she could be baptized for and that she'd been baptized for over 30,000 people. Of course, paying part of her fortune for every one of them, too. 
Um, and this Mormon pastor claimed that he said in the judgment day it's going to be shown that this woman saved more people than Jesus did. It was kind of like, Whoa. this is the kind of blasphemy that, that goes on in the world. But some people will say that he's talking about that, that perhaps the Corinthians were involved in something like that here, where they were baptizing people who were alive on behalf of people who had already died. I don't think that that's what this is saying here. I really don't. And the reason I don't is because I would be hard-pressed to believe that Paul would mention a practice like that if it was going on in the Corinthian church and not rebuke it. As, as, because he's been spending his whole letter rebuking things that, are, that they've been doing wrong in the Corinthian church. So I really don't think that's what it means. That's what it sounds like, but I don't think that's what it means. And I, I think he would have come very strongly against something like that as being an unbiblical practice. So... Of all the interpretations that I was able to find, which probably isn't all of them on this verse, the one that made the most sense to me uh, was suggested by Ironsides and some others. He said he sees verse 29 as a continuation of verses at the end of verse 19. If you look, verse 29 starts out with, else, what would, how does it go, else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? It's kind of like, else... He feels that uh, verses 20 through 28 are kind of a parentheses. It's kind of like he's going along talking about uh, Jesus Christ. If he wasn't raised, then you're lost in your sin. And he comes to verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And he wants to, he wants to get to telling them about what Jesus Christ is raised. And, he wants to, and, and then verses 20 through 28 are kind of on a little side. Well, I don't want to call it a side because they're very important verses. It's a parenthetical comment talking about Jesus being raised. And then in verse 29, goes back to where he was in verse 19. So if you read in 19 and say, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Again, remembering that he's been talking about if the resurrection didn't exist, you're still in your sins and you're lost and we are most miserable. And then to 29, else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? So he feels like it's a continuation of that same discussion uh, which makes sense to me. And, then, and that the idea here is that throughout the ages, um, being baptized and identifying yourself as a Christian has at times and still is in so, at times and in some places, it's a dangerous thing to do. If you identify yourself with Christ, you are immediately open for persecution. Back in those times, you, were, you could be immediately open for persecution and martyrdom and... And certainly, even without that, throughout the ages, Christians have been being baptized and being identified with Christ, and then obviously have been dying. And, and he, he feels like what he's saying here is talking about people who are coming along and being baptized, kind of like filling up the ranks of those who have died. He, he said it, it's kind of like the idea of you, if you have a platoon of men that goes into battle, comes back from the battle, and then, and then they take an account of the platoon, and they find out that some number of the men have been killed, and they are gone. And so then uh, they go out and recruit to try to fill in the ranks of the platoon so that it can be a full platoon the next time they go out uh, to battle. He likens it to that. and say, So he's, he's saying, and again, the whole point being, he's discussing the resurrection and if the resurrection isn't true, what, and in doing, and, and, and this is sort of a, just a side note, say, why would people continue to be baptized and identify themselves with Christ and open themselves up for persecution and martyrdom and all this? Why would they continue to do this 
if there is no such thing as the resurrection. This is foolish. So I'm not going to tell you that that's the right interpretation of being baptized for the dead. Clearly, if somebody tried to uh, you know, start a church based on the verses being baptized for the dead, uh, that, that would be silly, because right? it's clearly you know, the idea that you could be baptized on behalf of someone who has already died is a silly notion, that's a wrong notion that's not taught anywhere else in Scripture. And uh, so that, I, 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 that sounded like it made the most sense to me of all the different uh, interpretations of that verse. So I, I could be wrong, but did you have something? Oh, sorry. I thought I, I saw something. So then he goes on in 29 through 34, again, and getting back to the argument about if there isn't a resurrection, then why? Uh, why would one expose themselves to persecution and death if the dead are not raised? And then he goes on in 31. That word, pro I protest, he said, that protest in verse 31 is, it's a strong affirmation that's used in oaths. So what it really means is basically he's saying, I swear to you by the rejoicing that we have in Christ that I die daily. And I, I think he's talking here of the dying daily. He's talking about the many trials that he has had as a believer in Christ. And we referred to it last week, and I won't go back and read it this week, but 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27 is where Paul makes the list. I mean, that's the second letter to the Corinthians, but he makes a list of all of the trials and persecutions and tribulations that he has gone through as a believer. And I think that's what he's referring to here when he says, I protest, or I swear, I say to you, and I affirm to you, by the rejoicing that we have in Christ that I die, I have persecutions and troubles and trials daily. And he even mentions one here. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, and I think he's referring to the episode in Ephesus where the mob started chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You know, there was, there was some problem there with the, the men who made the idols and they tried to stir up the crowd and saying, here's a man that's preaching against idolatry. He's going to ruin our business. And got people all chanting and the mob grabbed a couple of Paul's traveling companions and they were going to do nasty things to him. And uh, Paul was going to go in there and they tried to restrain him from going in there. And for hours they were screaming. I don't think he was literally talking about fighting against animals in Ephesus. I think he was talking about fighting against these animals in this mob. But he said, why? I have this tribulation and I die daily. And I, if I, why would I bother with all the problems like I had at Ephesus if there's no resurrection? And he goes on to say, why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? I mean, literally, if there was no resurrection, I couldn't stand here and say there's really any reason not to just go after all the pleasures that the world has to offer, because as one person said, you're going to be dead for a long time. So you might, you know, if there was no resurrection, you might as well just grab for all the gusto you can, because that's really all there would be. And, and that's his argument here in 32. And then he drops these verses 33 and 34 on us. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Uh, not a very good translation in the King James, I don't think. The word, uh, a better translation in our language would be evil company or communion corrupts good customs or morals. Evil company corrupts good morals. And on some of the translations you have say that. And, and you have to remember back to 1 Corinthians 5, he said, he told the Corinthians not to company with someone who calls himself a brother, 
who was doing all kinds of evil, and he makes a long list of things, you know, fornication and covetousness and all this. Somebody calls himself a believer, and they're involved in all this kind of evil. Don't even fellowship with them, he says. And now I think he's saying here, um, this isn't just sort of out of the blue dropped here. It's a good, um, it's a good teaching that evil company corrupts good morals. Uh, but he's in the context here, he's talking about these false teachers in Corinth that are teaching that there is no resurrection. He said, do not company with these people. Do not listen to these people. This is, you, you may get corrupted by listening to these people. And then goes on in 34, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So we are to be awakened to righteousness or to know the truth and do it. He says it's a shame for them to put up with the kind of teachers that are teaching this nonsense, calling themselves brothers, and they're in the body, and they're teaching this nonsense. And uh, it's a shame to them to put up with this. And let me just sort of say as a sidelight here again, I've said it before, and you know it's true, but there are many false teachers out there in the world today. And, and it is just amazing how much false teaching there is. And there are some out there with very good intentions. They have very good intentions and they believe they're serving the Lord and they're teaching false doctrine. And then there are those who have evil intentions and they're also teaching false doctrine. It doesn't really matter where the false doctrine comes from. Now, we need to know what the truth is and to be able to awake to righteousness and truth and be able to hold on to that and to be able to know when doctrine is false, whether someone is a nice person teaching it or they have the best of intentions or not. Uh, as we said last week, it is up to us to know the scripture, obey it, and earnestly contend for the faith and for sound doctrine. And that is sadly lacking in the church today. There is so much false teaching and there's, uh, and some of the false teaching is the teaching that, how do you deal with false teaching? <laughs> Saying, you can't, you know, you can't come and talk, to, you can't mention publicly, you gotta talk to people privately if they're false teaching. And I mentioned that last week, baloney. Somebody's teaching false teaching publicly, it needs to be confronted publicly and, and told this is false, this is not correct doctrine. All right, off that soapbox, on to 35 to 50 here. In 35 to 50, Paul is gonna address the fact that some people don't understand, and none of us really do understand, the particulars of the resurrection of the body. And some of the people were apparently asking questions about it. Um, perhaps legitimately trying to get knowledge about, you know, how is the body really raised? And, but perhaps some of it might have been also people trying to stir up trouble, you know, trying to sort of, well, you know, how could this be true and how could this happen? I don't know. It doesn't say that here. Um, but there were people there trying to discredit the resurrection. So we don't know if some of the questions weren't being asked to try to stir up some difficulty. So he goes on. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. Um, so the question is asked in verse 35 and in 36 to 38, I'll go on and read 37 and 38. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. He goes back to, uh, you know, remember the verse in John 12, 24, where he says, verily, Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. 
But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus was speaking there of his death, you know, that he was going to have to die and, and of course, be raised and bear much fruit. But the illustration, of course, is of the seed going into the ground and dying, and then the plant growing up and bearing much fruit. And here, Paul is focusing on the fact that we don't understand exactly how that works. <clears throat> Even with all the, you know, scientists might say, well, this happens, and I mean, but we still don't know exactly why you stick that seed in the ground and why it starts to grow and you get these plants that grow. Um, we, we do our part. We put the seed in the ground at the right depth, and well, if you're planting, you know, a thousand acres, I guess you don't water it. You just pray that the Lord will water it. But if you're planting a small garden, you water it, you do that, you cultivate it, you do all your part, but it is God who causes it to happen. And we really don't understand exactly how that happens, but it does. And then the implication is that it's the same for our bodies. The body will die, but a new body will be brought forth by God, a better body as it pleases God, just like the plant with the fruit on it is better than the seed that went into the ground. So again, he's using that example to say, we don't know exactly how necessarily it works, but it, it'll be done as it pleases God. Your body will be raised up, a better body um, the, than the body, that, you know, the, the body that you had that died. 39 to 44, he goes on, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. He's saying here that there, you know, there are different levels of flesh. You know, man, there's animals, and man is greater than the animals, unless you happen to be one of these tree-hugging, animal-loving people that are around today that somehow believe that trees and animals are better than people, and then those people exist. Um, but of course, that's an attack of the enemy to try to tear down the worth of man, and that's another whole side issue. But um, it. it it amazes me that this teaching is out there where our children, even in schools, are being taught that, they're taught all this stuff, that animals are more important than people, all this. And then, you know, then somebody goes on a rampage and kills a bunch of people and we're somehow surprised by that. Or, or people are, you know, all this immorality that's out there. When, when we're being taught that we're no better than the animals, why, why are we surprised when people act like animals? But that's another side soapbox. There are some stars out there that are greater than other stars, he says. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And I believe he's using all of this as an illustration. Uh, of the in the same way, he says, the natural body has a certain amount of glory. And when you think about it, the body that God has given all of us is an amazing, amazing thing. Um, I, I, the human body is remarkably hardy. I, I think of, we went and saw Sue's grandmother yesterday. She's 96 years old and she's, I believe, on her deathbed. She's been a remarkably spunky woman for all these years. And even now, her body is still alive it, with all the things that have gone wrong with her. And it is still, her heart is still beating and is still, now it's by the grace of God, I understand that. But, it, but if we were looking just strictly humanly at the human body, we would say, man, what an amazing machine. And, 
and there's all sorts of specials they have on public television, you know, on the human body and how it works and, and how it, uh, it has its immune system and, and all of the things about the body. It, it has a certain amount of glory that God has given us in our earthly bodies, but, uh, but he's saying that is a certain amount of glory, just like a, a lesser star, but there are greater stars out there, and, and in that same way, our glorified bodies are going to have much greater glory than, than our uh, bodies that we have. And I mentioned this briefly last week, and I, I, I really think that uh, we will have, in some sense, we will have the same body that we have now, except it will be changed into a glorious body. It's not like this body will be completely gone. Sort of in the same way that a seed, seed gets put in the ground and then a plant grows from it. It's from that same seed. And again, I'm not recommending going out and you know building a doctrine on you know the church of the, you have the same body after it's glorified, you know, as your main doctrine. I, you know, I'm not getting all Advent out of shape about it. But I, but I think it says, it is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. So in some sense, the same body that we have now will be raised up as a much more glorified body. And that is a completely side point that probably doesn't even matter. But, um, but he, he's, he's using these as examples here of the, uh, the different kinds of flesh, the different kinds of stars and the different kinds of glory, just as an illustration, I believe, of, of the different kinds of glory of the body that we will have. And because he says in 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You start out with a, a, a physical human body, and it's, he says, it's sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. So when it is raised up, it will be raised up in glory, and it will no longer have um, the problems that we have Today, there'll be, you know, there's not going to be any more knee pain in our glorified bodies. There's not going to be any more heart problems. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more, any, you know, their glorified bodies are going to be much more glorious than the bodies that we have today. Okay, so if we go on to 45 to 50, he continues on in the same vein. In verse 45, he talks about, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He's continuing on really in the same vein. These, all these verses are... 35 to 50 really are talking about the same physical body, the glorified body. He speaks of the first Adam and refers to Christ as the last Adam. Um, possibly because these were the only two humans who were born without sin and through whom many have received something. That's kind of the comparison. They were born without sin and many have received something through them. Through the first Adam, we all who are in Adam have inherited our uh, our, na our natural bodies and our sin nature after he sinned. The last Adam, which is Christ, became a quickening or life-giving spirit. Um, in verse 45, he became a, a quickening or life-giving spirit through Christ's death and resurrection, which was discussed in detail earlier in the chapter, the elect obtain a spiritual life. So again, he's going on in the same way. 
40, verses 46 to 49, first came the earthly and then came the spiritual, and we partake of both if we are born again. If we are not born again, we partake only of the earthly. We will be resurrected, but we will be resurrected to the white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire, and we will not partake of the, the glorified body. Um, and we will, if we are born again, that we will bear the image of the heavenly. That means we will get the spiritual life given by Christ. And then in verse 50, he has kind of an important, by the way, the earthy or the flesh and blood that we got through Adam cannot go to heaven. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God in our bodies as we are. It is only the spiritual body that can do that. And of course, that spiritual body is only for those who are in Christ, only for those that are born again. And then interestingly, he goes on in 51. And this isn't just a discussion about the rapture, although he does, I mean, okay, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but we use that term rapture to refer to that time when, uh, when, when the, uh, uh, the Christians will be, their bodies will be changed into the glorified body. The ones that are alive, their body will be changed in the glorified body and they'll be, you know, go up in the air to meet with the Lord, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. He, he's not just it's not just the rapture he's talking about here, but he says uh, we won't all die a physical death, you know, all of us who are in Christ, but all of us will have our bodies changed. He says that in 51, we shall all be changed. So whether we all actually die a physical death or we, or, or we are caught up to be with the Lord in what we call the rapture, we all will get a new glorified body. All, all who are in Christ will get the new glorified body. And of course, he doesn't say when it's going to happen in 52. He just says it will happen in the twinkling of an eye in an instant. It'll occur when God determines that the time has come. Apparently it wasn't 1988. Um, when God has determined that the time has come, those who are dead will be raised and given their new body and those who are alive will not die, but will be changed in an instant. And as mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, will be caught up in the clouds to meet Christ in the air at that time. And in verse 53 says, uh, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. Our, our, in order, if we want to be to heaven, get to heaven, our bodies must be changed. Uh, because as in back in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Um, we will not see God without a glorified body. And you get the glorified body again by being born again. I've said that a number of times, but that's very true. And then in verse 54 to 56, when this happens, death will finally be defeated. You know, if you think about it, throughout history, death has been a very formidable foe. I mean, everybody looks at it and says, everyone's going to die. I mean, in, in, in the flesh, as humans, you know, setting the rapture aside, I don't mean to set an important thing aside, but I mean, just looking at it in the flesh, if it goes long enough without the rapture occurring, all flesh will die. It doesn't matter how famous or popular or important or good looking or anything. Um, you know, something I forgot I was going to mention at the beginning in the introduction, I was going to say today is the first Sunday of the NFL season. And so to make my obligatory comment about the NFL football season, Unless sports athletes are born again, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't matter how much money they make or how many records they set or how many Super Bowl rings they get. 
they will not see the kingdom of God without being born again, just like you and me. So in that respect, they are no better than you and I. They might be able to catch passes better than us. But, but death has been a very formidable foe because everyone faces death and no one defeats it. It doesn't matter if you become president. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter anything. Death has become a very formidable foe. But he gets to the point here where he says at that time and when the end comes and when our, when our mortal bodies are, have put on immortality, we will be able to say in praise, death, where is your sting? And gray, oh grave, where is your victory? Uh, we have feared death, but when this happens, we will be able to cry out, where is your power now? Death. And some of these verses here in 55 are quoting out of like Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 12 to 14. And he's quoting where he says, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. And note that in 56, it, comes, it all comes down to the law. Remember, Romans 7, 7 to 9, I, I will turn there and read that. I've been uh, not reading some of these verses, but just referring to them. Oh, God, Romans is ahead of Corinthians, I knew that. Uh, Romans 7, 7 to 9, we just, we were reading Romans at home, and we just got through these verses. Uh, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for... I had not known lust except the law said thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And 56 goes right into that. It goes on to say the strength of sin is the law. Without the law, there really was no sin. Without the law telling you what was sin, there was no sin. We're not responsible. But the law came to find what sin was and showed us what sinners we are. And, that, and the sting of death is sin. Of course, as it goes on in, in Romans, you know, the, the wages of sin is death. And so he, he, he ties that all together there. But then comes the grand finale in 57 and 58. He now rejoices, praise and thanks to God who has provided the victory over death through Christ, uh, which he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I, I thought about this here. I think I've given this illustration before, but uh, this would be like uh, if you were a very hungry person and you had been invited to a banquet that has every kind of the most delicious food that you, that, that in the world that you liked. Everything you liked, just the way you like it, was all there for the taking free, like the best buffet that could ever be. And, and it would be like us, us wanting to hold on to this life would be like saying, well, you know, I, I can't wait a little bit. I'm hungry. I'm going to go to McDonald's and gorge myself on hamburgers and be so full that I can't partake of this sumptuous banquet that's given to me free. And to me, that would be like us wanting to hold on to this earth and the things of this earth. And this would be like the farmer holding the seeds of the corn in his hand and saying, I want this. I don't want the fruit that's going to come from planting the seed in the ground and having all the, you know, the ears of corn. In there. I want to hold on to the seeds. And 
you know, there's a doctrine floating around. I probably bring it up way too much, but it says that God wants you to always be wealthy and healthy, and he wants you to have all things comfortable and favor and everything in this world. And in my mind, this is focusing on the wrong thing. It's focusing on this world and our corruptible bodies and the stuff that's all going to be burned up and saying that that's what the important stuff is. You exercise your faith so that you can be healthy, but of course you're going to die someday anyway. So, but, and you exercise your faith to get stuff, but it's going to rust out and corrode no matter how much you try to take care of it. And, and it's, to me, it's, it's like we're Esau selling our spiritual birthright for a mess of pottage. We're saying, I'm going to use this great gift that God has given, the, the, uh, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to use that to exercise to get a bunch of McDonald's hamburgers instead of this sumptuous banquet. And, and to me, that's wrong. And that's just one of those false teachings that are out there that I think we have to be very careful about. The important thing is our spiritual growth and our spiritual development and, and the things of God and the things that are spiritual. That is what is important. And if it takes uh, crushing the body to some extent, or it takes trials and tribulations to get us to grow, then that is what we should want. Maybe not an overabundance of it, but... <laughs> um, and then I find it interesting where it all ends. He says, therefore, because of all the stuff that I have just told you, we should be steadfast, which literally means being seated or morally fixed. We should be morally fixed in our belief, not tossed about by every wind of doctrine or or earthly thing, but determined to continue and abound in the things of God. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, well, let me read 57 again, just, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be fixed, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We should be wanting to be steadfast and abound in the things of the Lord, not in the stuff of the world. The word abound in the Greek means to have an abundance, more than enough, to overflow, to have an excessive amount of something. And we should be wanting to have an excessive amount of our, of our uh, work of the Lord. That is the result of all this. You know, that's not what gets you saved, but being able to look back on all the the glorious things that he's talked about here, the resurrection of Christ being the first fruits, and, and because of that, guaranteeing our resurrection if we are in Christ, and the fact that we're going to have this glorified body, all of these things, because of what Christ has done, we should, our, our natural reaction ought to be to, to, to overflow in the work of the Lord, and the work of the Lord, whatever he has called us to do wherever we are. Um, that we should abound in that because we know that our work in the Lord is not empty or vain because there is a resurrection and we will receive rewards for deeds done in the body. And we can, you know, tell others the gospel and we can minister to others. All of the areas where God calls us to be, that's where we should be. And uh, so we come to the end of that and we say, okay, well, you got to just at least briefly talk about what so so what? What is, what, is, what is the application or what is the conclusion that we would reach? And, and, we, and you may reach different ones than me, but I, I'd say, first of all, we need to be someone who will receive a glorified body. 
Uh, we need to be someone who will partake of the first resurrection. We need to be born again. And uh, the Bible very clearly says, and uh, Keith quoted this today, we have to admit that we're sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we have to know that as sinners, God's wrath abides on us and we deserve his judgment in hell, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That is the truth, that we are sinners and that the wrath of God is abiding on all iniquity. And we have to believe the that's, the that's about Christ that he mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And another verse that says like this, Romans 10, 8 to 10. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall receive in thine heart, believe, excuse me, shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The first conclusion after going through this great chapter about the resurrection in our glorious body is we want to be one of those people that has that is going to take part in the resurrection to life the first resurrection and have that glorious body we need to be born again and then as believers um, again I, I said this last week and it's really the same kind of conclusion we, we can rejoice in the death and resurrection of Christ and the fact that he because of that has made the way so that we can be resurrected for the first resurrection and have a glorious, glorified body. I think this is some, one of these doctrines and teaching of the scripture that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind uh, because it helps us to remember where we came from, who we were, where we came from, and what Christ has done for us. And, and, and sort of buried in this is the idea that we have to go on to maturity and you know, there are other doctrines to learn, but these foundational doctrines and the teachings like this must always be clear and we must always focus on them so that we know where we have come from and what we have been and what Christ has done. And then we need to know that the world is full of subtle false teaching and beliefs. And uh, we've said it so many times, but the way, to, the way to combat false teaching is to know the truth. That is how you combat false teaching, so that when false teaching comes to you, no matter how subtle it is, and, and, and I will say it, believers, you're not going to get taken in by somebody that's going to come and say, you have to get three piercings in your right ear, and you have to go out and murder people, and that's the only way to get to heaven. I mean, we're not going to believe something as stupid as that. The false teachings that are going to, that are going to possibly get us are going to have a great bunch of the truth mixed in with a lie. And we have to know the truth so well that when that, is, when that comes to us, we know enough to know what the truth is and to reject the false teaching and to earnestly contend for the faith and for sound doctrine. Um, and then I just want to conclude in, uh, by reading verses 57 and 58 one more time, the conclusion of this great chapter. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, I thank you for the truth of the word. I thank you that um, we know that Christ um, died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again for our justification, and I am thankful for that. I just pray that if there are any here who do not know and do not believe um, in that, that you would continue to work in their hearts and in their lives to bring them to a uh, bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who know you, Lord, I just want to thank you again and praise you that you have provided this for us. And, and pray that we would always be mindful of, of where we have come from and what you have done for us. And, and yes, move on to maturity and move on to all the doctrines and all the truth that you want us to know. But to always have these fundamental truths solidified in our hearts and in our minds and hold on to them so that we may know you and know the truth and not be taken in by false teaching. I just pray that, Lord, and, and pray your blessing on the believers at Hiawatha Bible Chapel today in Jesus' holy name. Amen.